Marcus's podcast, Conversations on Faith and Equality. In today's podcast, we've got Claire Kennedy, and it's talking about addiction and recovery. I have been so gripped by hearing Claire's story and hearing her talk about what she went through, what her husband went through, and she she says she talks about him quite a bit. He's Curly Watts from Coronation Street, so if you're a Coronation Street fan, you're going to love this. I was really impacted by her story of what and the reality of addiction, but also impacted by what she does now and the amount that she does to help people get into recovery. And this is actually the longest podcast I think I've ever done, but I just found it so hard to cut because I was so gripped by her story and what she was telling me. That I feel like a lot of the time you'll hear me just go, wow. As I was just listening to her, you know, I felt like I learned so much from it. So I hope that you get a lot from this too. And I'm sure any support that you could give to Claire Kennedy Street Recovery would be great if you felt like doing that. I was speaking to some other people that know Claire and they said, you know, she'll tell you a bit about what she does, but that's only a small part of what she actually does. She is always doing things to help people, getting people into accommodation, getting people into rehab, helping people start jobs. She's just always doing stuff and you only hear a tiny amount of that and what you do here has quite an impact so it, she's really inspiring and it's fascinating so I hope you enjoy hearing this please um, share it with friends tell people about it and the more that you like subscribe or make comments on it on the podcast it really helps with the algorithms and more people get to hear about it see about it so please share it with anyone and everyone but I hope you enjoy hearing this one thank you so much for listening Thank you so much, Claire. I've been wanting to talk to you for ages. And actually, I've been wanting to talk about addiction and recovery for a while. I think from having had conversations with people that I know and thinking they're just so inspiring. I think partly the kind of vulnerability and honesty that I've found in a lot of people. I think you don't really get in always in other people. And actually, it's sort of impacted groups I've been part of when there's someone there who's been through recovery because they're suddenly really honest. And then everyone else is like wow, actually, yeah, this is what's going on in my life. And the real truth all comes out. But I wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had the people who had sort of learned to do that themselves. Uh, but before we kind of get into it, talking about it, I'd love to just know your story, kind of how... Well, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my story is through experience. Mm. So... Um, I got into recovery myself 28 years ago. I know you're looking at me and thinking I don't look old enough. Um, so I started in family recovery first. Okay. So I'm married to an alcoholic and um, who was really very unwell. Um, and he was on Coronation Street at the time, mm-hmm. so he played Curly Watts on Coronation Street. For those of you who don't know who I'm married to, it's called Kevin Kennedy. <laughs> And he had a very public demise into addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, what we didn't know was that we were being hacked at the time. Oh, wow. You wouldn't think phone hacking would happen all those years ago, but it, it did. And um, every move that we made was being fo- we were being followed. Oh, wow. And so every time he fell over or had a um, he had a very public um, seizure um, in a place where we lived in Manchester. Um, and it was um, photographed and it went global, that photograph. Mm. And in a way, we thought that was the end of the world. As you can imagine, I've been carrying a secret for a long time that I was married to an alcoholic. And um, 
it was it was really just the beginning of a new life really we didn't know that at the time I thought you know this is terrible his work found out that Granada where he worked I thought he was going to get the sack you know his mum and dad found out they didn't know uh, I'd just been keeping buying into mm. the secret um, so was it basically just you and him who knew that? yeah yeah we carried this guilty secret mm. And what I didn't know at the time, um, because I was living with an alcoholic who drank daily and who secretly drank, was that my drinking and drug taking was out of control also, but it was very different to his. So I was looking at him as the alcoholic because he drank like I thought an alcoholic drank. And I would be really quite now when I think about it I was really quite judgment, judgmental of him and his drinking and quite naive and ignorant really as to the enormousness enormousness of my own problem um, but it was all part of the plan mm. I think because it was really through getting help to help me with his situation so I went to Al-Anon mm. first of all it, well, go which is for the family yes. of those so first of all, he had this very public seizure. It was photographed, it went global, and the secret was out. Mm. And um, he had to go into hospital that day uh, and stayed in hospital for five days, but the paparazzi were outside. And there was a lovely, lovely Northern Irish male nurse, very gentleman, who sat down and said to me, you need help. And I was like, it's the first time anybody had even suggested that I needed help. And I was like, no, I haven't got a problem. As him, you know, he's fallen over and hit his head. He had a seizure, it was photographed, and we went into, we got picked up by the ambulance, um, talked to the hospital, and this beautiful Northern Irish male nurse sat me down and said, um, your husband's an alcoholic and that's why he's had a seizure. And I was like, no, 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 he's had a seizure because he's fallen over and hit his head. So he said, no, he's fallen over and hit his head because he's an alcoholic and he's not had enough to drink. And I I was like, I didn't understand what mm. he was talking about. I thought, I didn't know people could have seizures. I didn't know that you shouldn't just stop drinking, which is what Kevin had done. And But he sat me down and he said, you need help. And I was like, I haven't got a problem. And so, because at this point, I'd not even, not even looked at my drinking and drug taking. Um, and um, he said, no, you've got a problem because you're an affected other. You're a family member. And this illness of addiction, alcoholism, will not only kill your husband, it will kill you too. And, I, and honestly, he said it in such a gentle, kind way that it scared me. Mm. And he said, you need to go to Al-Anon. He said, and he gave me an Al-Anon number of a lady that I could ring. And I went the next day. And it was a revelation. Honestly, it was a revelation. I couldn't actually believe that there was other people carrying these guilty secrets. Mm. Um, and there was something else there in that room. And there was a strength in them. And this intimacy that they shared, which it, it really opens your heart. And it allows you to be emotional. It allows you to connect to others in an emotional way that I'd never, ever connected before. Mm. Um, and I went there for two years. And, and I did go there with the intention of them hopefully telling me how to stop my husband drinking. Um, had, you, had it been a long time that you'd been thinking, he's, this is a problem, his drinking? Yeah. 
even before we got married. So when we first met, I thought he was a big drinker, big, big drinker. But I quite liked that because I was a big drinker. Um, and it was all it was all subconscious. Mm. And I just thought, in a way, he became like a project. I know that sounds awful, but I thought, oh, he's, he's got a big problem. Maybe I can save him. I don't know what I thought it was, Florence Nightingale or something. Um, but I thought I could save him. And I thought, you know, I'll sort him out. He's successful, a very successful actor, brilliant actor. I mean, an amazing mind. Very funny. That's what really drew me to him, his humour. is terrible, filthy sense of humour. But I loved it. <laughs> and um, he's just a really comical guy. And I just thought, you know what, I'll be able to sort him out. And I never was able to. So I knew from the get-go what I was getting into. Um, and, I, and guess what? I couldn't save him. I tried. I tried all sorts of different ways. And in a way, it was, it was really controlling off me. I know that now. Um, you know, buying him certain amounts of beers per day. Um, like, allowing him to have four cans a day. And thinking I was doing him a favour. And I really, I don't know what I was thinking. Now when I think back, I don't know what I was thinking. So why were you trying to do that to sort of restrict it? or yeah, just so he wouldn't go over. So Kevin was, um, and I know he wouldn't mind me talking about this because we talk about this a lot in mm -hmm. public. So Kevin was a maintenance drinker. So that there are different types of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. You've got maintenance drinkers, you've got daily drinkers, you've got binge drinkers. And he was what you call a maintenance drinker. So he had to drink a certain amount of alcohol per day to keep him at a level of being constantly intoxicated enough that he could do his job. Because don't forget, he was acting in front of, in those days, 24 million people a day. Right. On, it was like... It was only Coronation was the biggest thing. It, well, there was only four channels. Coronation Street still is a massive programme, but in those days it was one of like, it was... One of the only, it was like that, Emmerdale, yeah, EastEnders. Were, and Brookside, and Brookside went off air, so it was like they were left with Emmerdale, EastEnders and Corrie, and mm. those are the soaps. Um, and he was a legend, he was a legend character. He was in it for 20 years, so it was wow. in a long, long time. People felt that they knew him, you know, more than they knew some of their own family members. Um... Yeah, so I thought that, that I was helping by limiting him to so much alcohol mm. per day. It would help him keep his level at a level. Because as soon as he went under his level, he would start to shake violently, to sweat, to feel very anxious and sick. And I thought it was almost like it, it was his medicine. Um, and I thought I was doing him a favour in managing his medicine, but... What I now know was in managing his medicine and his addiction, I was avoiding my own. Mm. So that was to come out later on down the line. Mm. Yeah, but that was the beginning of the can story. You explain, so, that, so that was the maintenance. Can you explain those other two before we then go back to back into the story? So it was yeah. daily drinking. Yes, so you've got um, maintenance drinkers who have to drink a certain amount per day to set, stay at a level. Um, so then if they wake up in the morning with shakes they yeah, have to have a drink they, yeah, they have to have a drink um, and they have to have a steady drink throughout the day and it becomes part, a part of their addiction is managing the amounts that they drink per day and then you've got daily drinkers who, who might go to work who as soon as they get in 
they might even be planning a drink at work so that they're like, I'm not drinking today, I'm not drinking today, I'm not drinking today. And they get home and it becomes one o'clock. And they might be making dinner if it's a mum or dad. And, you know, they might think, oh, I'll just have a little glass of wine with whilst I'm making dinner. And then before you know it, they've drank a bottle. So that's alcoholic drinking. A lot of people don't recognise that's alcoholic drinking because a lot of people do it. Mm. Um, but that's daily drinking. If you have to daily drink, there's a problem. And then you've got binge drinking, which is what I was. So I was a weekend drinker. So I wouldn't drink in the week. I would smoke marijuana in the week. I didn't know that was a drug. I naively thought it was a herb. Don't know what I was thinking there either. Proper hippie. Yeah, proper hippie. I thought it was like, it's like oregano. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so I'd smoke weed in the week and I would drink at weekends, starting on a Friday. And once I started drinking, I would be off like a Polaris missile. And we always argued because I was a different type of drinker to Kev because he, he had to drink a steady amount. And I thought I was really boring because when I started drinking, I was like like a, like a thunderstorm, honestly, like a whirlwind. And then I would take drugs as well. I would take cocaine um, because what I didn't know, which I know now, is that cocaine helped me drink more. Because when you take alcohol and cocaine, it creates a third drug called cocaethanol, which is what sobers you up. And it's also a highly addictive drug that your body creates combining those two drugs. So at the end of my drinking, I was addicted to alcohol, cocaine, cocaethanol, marijuana, um, yeah. and my husband's addiction. Wow. Yeah, real combination. <laughs> I want to go back to the Al-Anon, but the other, you said, you know, the daily drinking, that was a problem. How do you know, you know, if people are like, I just, you know, I love a drink, I drink this, like, what, where would you be like, okay, this is where it, you know it's a problem? So, identifying yourself as an alcoholic is a very, very personal statement. Mm. It really is. There's a lot of people out there that drink alcoholically that would never in a million years think that they were alcoholic. And it really is a personal statement. Some people go to doctors and doctors say, you're drinking alcoholically. And the person ignores that statement because it, you have to admit that you're an alcoholic yourself. Um, what I say to people is when they say to me, how do you know if you're an alcoholic or not? I say, is it costing you more than money? And they'll say, what does that mean? And I say, well, is it costing you your relationship? Is it costing you time with your children? Is it costing you your job or time at work? Is it costing you your relationships with your family, even your kids? Because kids, kids know they're not daft. They're like little sponges. Is it costing you driving license? Mm. You know, so these are these are all consequences of problematic drinking. Mm. And now, if those are things are being affected, then you need to do something. Mm. You need to do something radically different. Um, some people can just stop. Some people are what they call problematic drug misusers. So alcohol is a drug. Um, and I don't differentiate between drink and drugs now. It's you know, alcohol's the, the, the biggest of the drugs that kills more people on a daily basis, and um, twice as many people as crack and heroin combined. Wow. Yeah. And it's the one subject that we really avoid talking about because it's so normalised. Mm. Mm. 
yeah, that's crazy to think of that. Mm. Scary, isn't it, mm. really? One of the other things, you, you said those things about how it's affecting, but when you were talking about, I think, the maintenance, when we were saying people sort of thinking about it, or the daily, like, thinking about it, and is that part of it, the amount that you're thinking, okay, when am I next going to have yeah, so a drink? You, yeah, so one of the things, like, when I say, you know, is it costing you more than money, is it costing you your time in your mind? Is it preoccupying your mind? Are you waking up in the morning feeling like you've been pooed out of a frog and having to recover all day and you know whilst at work or trying to work or trying to be with the kids are you recovering are you grumpy are you feeling like irritated angry and planning the next drink or or trying to plan not to have the next drink so there's a lot of preoccupation mental mm. preoccupation if that's happening there's a problem mm. and you need help so that preoccupation, some people stop drinking. This is what I used to do. So I would stop drinking on a Monday. I would dr probably drink enough over a weekend to have lasted me a whole week, maybe two weeks, because mm. I drank a lot when I drank. Like then, how much? Oh, gosh. I was saying to my daughter the other day, who went out and she had a pint of cider and I was like wow that's so normal um and I said well me and Isabel my best friend in Manchester would go out um on one occasion we drank 13 bottles of wine between us in a pub and I mean I'm not proud of that my daughter just went exactly the same expression that you did which was jaw dropped like mommy how did you not die yeah that's and that, that was, must have been a lot of money as well I don't where we got the money from but we did have it and we went to this one particular pub that we really favoured and we had 13 bottles of uh, peace porter I even remember what it was called peace porter it was horrible German wine but we had 13 bottles it was like our badge of honour mm. we'd had 13 bottles of wine and it was just me and her wow yeah and that was at an early age so I could sink a lot of booze and I used to I used to think I drank like a man, and because I, I my constitution was immense, mm. but it started to deteriorate, which it does when you drink that level. Even if you binge drinking, if you drink a lot, your tolerance starts to be affected. Your body starts to fail. That's when I found cocaine. Somebody said try this, because I was like oh, I can't drink anymore. Can't drink anymore, which really wasn't my remit. I used to like to drink a lot. And they said, oh, try this, you'll be able to drink more. So I had cocaine and it was like, it was like I sobered up instantly. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was able to drink another, like, ten bottles. So, uh, insane, insane amounts of alcohol. So you said that you started by going to the, the group for the family, Alan, yeah. Alan on. Yeah. And that was sort of when you started. I started to go to Alan on in the hope that they would teach me how to stop my husband drinking. Mm. Little did I know I was going to find out who I was. Mm. That I didn't know. Um, and I went every time. I used to go to maybe four or five meetings a week because I was very scared for my husband's life. I thought he was going to die. And I, I didn't know what to do. I really didn't know what to do. So I would go to these meetings in tears often and, you know, asking, begging people to tell me what to do. And... In fairness to them, they were just a whole bunch of wonderful, loving, kind people. And they would often share their experience um, in similar situations. But they never told me what to do. 
Um, and I would go and I would feel better when I left those meetings and feel a little bit of hope. And they teach you about 12-step program, which is where I did my first 12 steps in Al-Anon, um, which is the same 12 steps that they use in Alcoholics Anonymous, in Cocaine Anonymous, in Narcotics Anonymous. So the 12 steps were created by the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and they're basically... A, um, a set of principles, they're founded on 12 principles, which are wonderful, wonderful principles, biblical principles, um, and it's just a beautiful way to live your life, you know, it really is a beautiful way to live your life, and I did my 12 steps with Al-Anon, and had a radical transformation, so that's what happens when you go through the 12 steps, as a family member or as an alcoholic, so I went through the 12 steps and had a radical transformation, realised that there was absolutely nothing I could do about anything, never mind my husband, <laughs> including myself. And that the only person that could help me was, in, in Al-Anon they talk of a higher power. Um, and at the time I didn't have faith. I, I didn't grow up in a faith family. I didn't know anything about God or Jesus or any any faith really. Um, so the concept of a higher power worked for me initially um, and yeah, saved my life and changed my life. So that was the beginning. Mm. I went through those 12 steps. But what happened, I started, I carried on going to those groups because Kevin carried on drinking. He carried on stopping and starting and stopping and starting and he tried going to AA and he couldn't get it because he wasn't in, in, anonymous. Uh, everybody recognised him, people were taking pictures of him in meetings, oh, wow. and it was really quite... But quite that's busy. kind of contrary to what AA is about, it isn't is, it? It is, it is, and, and I don't think he was ready, to be honest. I, I, you know, I don't really think he was ready to stop. I think he used a lot of the... the you're going to get people who are going to, you know, if if Robert De Niro walked into a meeting... Or I'd be looking at him thinking, oh my God, that's Robert De Niro, you know. So, of course, you know, Curly Watts walking into an AA meeting, people were going up to him saying, oh gosh, can't believe Curly Watts, you're in, you know, you're in this meeting. And because he wasn't ready to stop drinking, he was using that as an excuse. There are lots of famous, that go, famous people that go to meetings and they stay well. But at the time, Kev wasn't ready. So I went to All and On and I was like, you know, airing these these things like you know he keeps going to meetings he can't get it because these people keep recognizing him and and they said well you know maybe he's not ready maybe he needs a little bit more evidence so he can really surrender and I was like how much evidence does he need he's going to kill himself but by going in and keep going to those groups for family members it taught me so much about myself and this kind old lady said to me one day which was a massive moment of clarity in my journey. I was talking about Kevin again and how he'd ruined my life. And she was knitting in this meeting and um, at the end of the meeting she put knitting needles down and she just looked at me and she said, you've been coming here for two years, haven't you, Claire? So I said, yes, I have actually. Very proud of myself. And she said, and for two years you've been blaming Kevin for the way your life's turned out. She said, let me, let, me, let me introduce you to a secret. She said, every time you point that finger at your husband and want to blame him, or anyone else for that matter, for the way your life's turned out, remember this, there's three fingers pointing back at you and one at the solution. 
She went, you're the only person you can do anything about and you can only do it with God's help. She says, son, get your act together. And I was like, wow. Wow. he still gives me gooses now. It really still gives me gooses because that gift is a gift that I give to other people, thanks to that lady. And it's such a simple gift, such a simple tool. And, and even to this day, I, I'd, I'd like to say I don't ever point the finger at anybody, but I don't get away with it these days. Because every time I do pull that rascal out and want to sort of say, oh, well, it's their fault, I can't not know what she told me. Mm. And the only person I really can do anything about is myself. And I can only do it with God's help. And she said, it doesn't have to be like a religious God. Uh, you know, higher power can stand for... Or, or God, the acronym can stand for good orderly direction. Do you need any of that? And I was like, I did at the time. So what they do in Al-Anon and with the 12 Steps is they meet you where you're at. There's a lot of people that do have faith that go to those groups. But a lot of people don't because of what they've been doing. So they may have had faith and lost the faith. You know, some people like me, for instance, never had faith. Um... And my actual journey of recovery has led me to faith. Yeah, that's what brought me to Christianity. Oh, wow. So what, how did you end up there from kind of beginning with Alan talking about higher power? How did you end up kind of with the so, faith? So it was, it was a journey. I know that sounds like a real cliche, but it was a journey. And I had a sponsor who suggested that I get down on my knees every day and pray to God. Um, she didn't give that God a name. She said, you know, it can be a God of your own understanding. And for me at the time, God stood for good orderly direction and mother nature. So it was quite whimsical at the start. But because I'd been doing a lot of bad stuff and I had no understanding of what God was anyway because I hadn't grown up with faith. So nobody, there was, I had one beautiful auntie called Auntie Flo who had faith. She used to go to um, church every Sunday. But she was a very quiet Christian. She was just a very wonderful lady. She didn't really talk about God. She just showed you how to be godly. Um, so she was a, an amazing influence um, on me when I decided to... You know, they said, who do you know? Who do you know who's got faith, who, who's got God? And I remembered Auntie Flo. Um. Yeah, and so I thought, right, well, they said, OK, so that God, Auntie Flo praise to you know when you get down on you and and they're quite specific so they say you know it's really important that you do learn to pray because you have to surrender your will in your life on a daily basis and admit and accept that you aren't in charge which as a family member and as an addict it's the hardest thing to accept that i'm not in control so yeah i think so, for anyone right I think part of our human condition is you we all want like, to control. We yeah. all want to control, don't we? But particularly when you've got all of this insane behaviour going on around you and in you. Because don't forget, still at this point, I'm in Al Anon, I'm not accepting, I've not even looked at my own drinking or drug taking yet. I'm thinking I'm still normal and that it's Kev that I'm praying for. But what I learned to do was I learned to pray for myself and have my own will and my life over. But also, the biggie for me was trusting that that God, that high power that I was praying to, if I really believed that I was handing my will and my life over to God, mm. I had to trust that he was going to look after Kev as well. That was a massive revelation. 
So it wasn't just me handing my will and my life over, it was me handing all of my loved ones over that I had no power over and trusting that God was going to do for them what they couldn't do for mm. themselves. And that was the beginning of a mass, like the radical transformation. So the whole purpose of the 12 steps is to bring about a radical transformation, which people really need. And if you don't, you often get people who've been to 12 step recovery groups and poo poo them and they're like, oh yeah, they don't work, they talk about God, it's religious, it's a cult, it's this, it's that, it's the other. Generally, those people haven't been through the 12 steps themselves. Not all of them, but most of them. So they don't, they haven't experienced a radical transformation themselves. So they don't know what really they're talking about because it is the going through those steps that brings about this. It's a miracle, really. It really is a miracle. Um, and for me, I carried on going to those groups, the Al-Anon groups, and I kept identifying with gentlemen talking about their wives when they were drunk and I kept thinking I don't think I'm meant to be identifying with his alcoholic wife and the way she drinks so I spoke to my sponsor my Al-Anon sponsor and I said do you know what I've been coming here for two years you've taught me the every time I point a finger um, acronym but now every time that particular chap talks about his wife it's like I'm it's like I'm his wife, he's, he's talking about me, that's what the sort of things his wife does, I do. And she said to me, if you identify with that man's wife, his wife's an alcoholic, you need to go to AA and you need to find out about yourself. So I thought, how rude. But she wasn't wrong. Mm. She wasn't wrong. And I went to AA really hoping to find out that I wasn't an alcoholic because I didn't because I didn't drink like Kevin. I didn't drink like my own father. My dad drank daily. I didn't drink like my mum. My mum was a binge drinker. I did actually drink more like my mum than my dad. Um, and I thought I'll go to AA just to just so I can understand that I'm not one. They're gonna say to me when I go there, what are you doing here? You you you're not an alcoholic, you can leave now. And nobody ever did say that. And on my very first meeting of going to AA, I, I did feel broken because Kev was in an acute psychiatric hospital at this stage. Mm. So Granada had paid for him to go into a private rehab um, and we were going to pay them back um, because he was nearly dying now at this stage. So he had not stopped and he had carried on working. And uh, at, this, at this point now, before I went to AA... I knew that there was something different about my drinking. I'd not even looked at my... I thought smoking marijuana was normal. So I, I thought I might have a drink problem. Um, and I I went to Kevin and said to him, look, you know, I think I might need to go to AA as well. And he was drunk. He was oblivious to what I was saying. And my sponsor had said to me, if you are an alcoholic, only you can tell yourself if you're an alcoholic. If you go to AA and you find out that you're an alcoholic... You living with your husband in active addiction is dangerous, so you need to you need to seek guidance on that. So, I, when I went to my first AA meeting, I identified straight away that I was an alcoholic. I knew my drinking was out of control. I knew that my once I started drinking, I couldn't stop. I didn't know that that was happening. I only learned that by going to the AA meeting. I thought I was just a party girl, 
but what I realise now is I've never had one drink of anything. And even in my history, grow as a teenager, if I start, if I had one drink, I would drink until I got that drunk, I'd be dangled over a bin. And that was my first drink. So I was drinking alcoholically from the get-go. I didn't know that. Um, and this lady... So it's like you wouldn't just have like one or two as a social thing, it would always I go. I never, ever... And I only know that by going to AA. I didn't know I'd never had a drink. Because if there was only if there was ever a chance of me only have a, having one drink, if I came to your house and you said, would you like a drink of wine with dinner? I would say no, because I knew that I would only be having one drink of wine. And that if I started drinking that wine, I wouldn't eat the food, because the food would interfere with the wine. I would drink that wine. I would probably encourage you to, to crack open the couple of bottles that I've brought and we'd be partying till four o'clock in the morning. No food would have been touched and we'd all be pie-eyed. And at the end of the night, I'd be suggesting that we get cocaine and more wine. And that was my kind mm. of, once I had one drink, even at a dinner party. So if I went to a dinner party, I would just say, no, thank you, I'll just have water. And that, in my deluded head made me think that I didn't have a problem because I could just have water and I'd be a designated driver. Because I knew subconsciously if I had one, I'd be off like a rocket. I didn't know that until I stopped drinking. I thought that, that I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I thought if you can not drink, then that means that you're not, you've not got a problem. Because mm. the fact that you could make that decision yes. to say no yeah. to, I yeah. won't, I'll eat rather than... yeah. And, and what I now know is that, so in, in AA we talk about, um, we have like an allergy to alcohol and it doesn't, it's not a normal allergic reaction. So if you had a peanut allergy and you had peanuts, you would have an anaphylactic shock where your throat would swell, you'd get hives all over your body, you'd have to go to hospital and you, you wouldn't be able to eat peanuts anymore. For me... If I have, my allergic reaction works like this, if I have a drink, it triggers in me my allergic reaction and my allergic reaction is to drink more and I can't stop once I drink. And that is often the case with a lot of alcoholics that you meet. Once they put one in, they're off. Mm. They might kid themselves, they might have one or two and think, look at me, one or two. But... If they have more, they'll have a limit of drinks. Mine was one drink. I couldn't have one drink without wanting more. Um, and I now know that, obviously, I don't drink now because I don't want to trigger that allergic reaction. Mm. I still have it. You know, I still think of drinking. I've not had a drink for 25 years. Yeah. Or a drug for 25 years. Um, because I knew that, actually, when I went to AA, I identified that I had an addictive personality. And that if I take anything that's mind-altering, I want more of it. Mm. It's like, I can drink I, I can drink coffee oh. alcoholically, I can drink anything. <laughs> it, I like coffee, but it's not going to kill me, so I limit myself to two, two cups a day. But in the early days, I used to drink ten, ten cups of coffee a day. And I'd wonder why I was like this, <laughs> jangling. But it's just the nature of my personality. But now you can even... Like manage that though that you could just put yourself at a limit of two. For coffee, find... yeah, because coffee isn't mind altering. So for me, with alcohol, once I put the alcohol in, it changes my brain chemistry. 
so I'm drug affected, whereas caffeine isn't the same sort of mind-altering drug. You feel it physically, mm. so you feel a bit jittery and a bit like, oh gosh, I feel like I've had too much coffee, but it doesn't change your brain chemistry in the, in the same way that alcohol does, or drugs. So it's the lesser of all evil. Some people end up addicted to coffee. When I worked at the Priory, we had... Um, we, we, I caught one client eating coffee in the, ca in the kitchen area, big spoonfuls of coffee because he couldn't get any drugs and he was determined. He had, you know those giant coffee thing, the giant coffee... Um, oh yeah, the sort of containers, containers. That, you, that you put in the cafetiere ones. Yeah, he'd, he'd eaten half of one of those by the time I got to him in the kitchen. You know, like when you catch a child eating chocolate secretly, he looked like a naughty child, but he had coffee all over his face. I said, what are you doing? And he was like, it's my only high. And so he was barred from coffee from, for the duration of his stay whilst he was in the Priory. Wow. Yeah. So again, each person's different. Some people can't touch coffee. It depends on the individual. Mm. And the thing is, is what I've learned in 25 years is who I am and what my triggers are and what my danger points are and you know I don't be, I'm never around toxic people um I I help a lot of poorly people but I choose the company that I keep in my social life to to be happy healthy well people because I'm just I'm a sensitive soul you know and I know that it, it I need people that are going to fuel my god tank as well mm. you know so I don't, I don't get around toxic people who you know call people nasty names or are really not pleasant it has a big impact doesn't it when you're around people that are like really positive and encouraging and build you up like oh I just feel so great or you're inspired by them like being around people yeah. like that totally changes how you feel and if you're yeah. but I guess for you that's difficult balance because now you know so much of what you're doing is supporting people yeah. Who are in recovery. Who... Well, they're starting the journey. Mm. So so I have to go into dark places. But but because I do have faith now, so my journey um, of faith really came about through going to meetings. Went to Al-Anon first, two years. Then I went to AA. And then I started um, doing this 12 steps in AA. And then at five years sober, I started to really struggle. Um, I wasn't doing drink, wasn't doing drugs, wasn't doing anything that was mind-altering, but at five, I was doing all the things that they're supposed to do in 12-step recovery. I was sponsoring people, I had a sponsor, I was doing service in fellowship, I was doing everything, you name it, I was doing it. But what happened was the fear started to come back. And at this point, I wasn't, I didn't have the faith. Um, and I, I used to pray and I used to meditate and I used to do all the things. Everything that they told me to do, I did religiously literally and uh, but the fear started to come back and it isn't a fear like oh I'm a bit frightened it's a gut-wrenching something terrible is a, like the world is going to end type of fear and I couldn't live with that I couldn't live with that fear so I went to my sponsor and I was like look I'm doing everything that I'm meant to do but the fear's back and I'm, I know I can't drink and I know I can't take drugs so what can I what can I take that that's not going to kill me what's going to take that away that's going to take that away do I need to go to the doctors and she said to me tell me about your relationship with your higher power so I said right so my higher power stands for God stands for good orderly direction it's mother nature I look at the trees I think well I didn't 
make that, you know, my, my God did. Look at the sea. I didn't make that, God did. And she said, okay, um, let me just stop you there. She said, I've been with you for five years and, and your concept of your higher power is exactly the same as it was when you first came to me and asked me for help. And she said, you do know that the whole purpose of the 12 steps is to move you closer to a God of your understanding. She said, you don't understand who your God is. She said, it stayed the same. She said, you need to go God shopping. So I was like, oh, not thought of that. So she said, right. And she was an atheist, this lady. Um, so I said, oh, okay. I'll go God shopping. I love a bit of research. So I went around all the God shopping places and went to the, the mosque and went to the um, synagogue and went to church, went on an alpha course in Manchester and um, wrote all my research notes down and took my findings to my sponsor and she said, uh, where's the greatest resistance? So I said, well, I, I didn't really like the alpha course. I didn't like the Christians, I thought this, that and the other, and I had very opinionated ideas. And unfortunately, I had met some real critical Christians at that on that Alpha course. I had certain views, um, and that just was reason enough for me to, to think, right, that's not the place for me. Very judgmental. Really judgmental, and I have got a lot of gay friends, and particularly this group that I was with had got a lot of opinions on gay people. So that was enough for me to go, right, well, obviously I'm never going to become a Christian. So I took my findings back to her and I was like, this is where I've got the greatest resistance. I'm never going back to that Alpha course. I did da 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 And she said, just let me stop you there. She said, I think that you should go back and do another Alpha course. I was like, what? I said, didn't you hear me? And she said, I did hear you. She said, and I think that's where you're going to do the greatest good. She said... The enemy doesn't want you there. She said, always look where the resistance is. And this is an atheist woman. Yeah, I can't believe, like, how she has that concept. Yeah. Uh, when She's had a journey since, so she okay. has found faith since. Okay. And I think me finding faith was part of her finding faith. And I do believe that God was all over it. Mm. He'd already parachuted into our relationship before I even met her. Lovely lady, she's still my sponsor today. So I did, I went back and reluctantly did another Alpha course and came back with more findings and more judgments and she went, I want you to do another Alpha course. I was like, this woman's going to kill me. She's going to kill me. I was like, yeah, but what about all these other... I found this and I found that and I found that. She went, I want you to go back. She said, because the resistance is so strong by, you know, with Christianity. She said, I really do think there's a reason why there's a resistance, so I need you to go back. So I went back again and then I started to meet people like me, people who were on a similar journey or who had experienced a loved one that they, and they weren't judgmental, they weren't, because I, I believe that I tried sort of all sorts of different ways to, to, to stop drinking, I didn't know I was doing that but before I got into recovery I tried to stop drinking lots of different ways and using drugs and I'd always started again. So um, I'd met other people on these on this new Alpha course that were like me, who'd actually, they'd got a programme for recovery through going to a 12-step fellowship, and they'd also found faith, and they were doing it side by side, and it was like, oh, okay. 
So I thought, actually, maybe I'm maybe I could hang about with these people. So I went to my local church, which is called Ivy Manchester in Manche in Manchester, and um, there was a new vicar. Uh, I didn't know it was a new vicar. And I went and knocked on his door, like that. And I said, oh, I've come to find out a little bit more about your church and um, if I could come. And I'm looking to find out more about Jesus. I said, I've done an Alpha course. I quite like the people that I met on this one, so I want to find out a little bit more about the Bible. And so he was like, and I said, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And, and you know, it, so it's really important that I do find something. So he's like, I can't believe you've come. And I was like, oh, okay. He said, come in. And he said, you're not going to believe this. He said, but I've only been in post for about two weeks. He said, this is my first job. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so he's like, it was like music to my ears listening to you ask about who this Jesus fellow was. He said, it's brilliant. He said, absolutely, of course, we'll teach it. We'll help you, whatever it is you need to know about Jesus. Well, of course, that's what we're here for. He said, but I'm really interested about the whole recovery bit. He said, can you tell me a bit more about that? So I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. So I told him about that. And he was like, it's remarkable. He said, I think you've actually been sent. He said, I think this is a God moment. He said, because I've only been in post for two weeks. He said, and there's a lot of people who've come forth and asked for prayer around addiction. He said, and I've been praying. He said, I've been praying for weeks now. He says, and I think, because he didn't know about recovery, he didn't know what recovery fellowships were. So he said, I think you might be able to help them people. He said, I don't know. He said, but whilst we're teaching you about this Jesus fella, how about you teaching them about this recovery fellowship stuff? He said, you can use our church to do it. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, well, I wasn't expecting that, but of course, absolutely. So I started inviting guest speakers from different fellowships to come. And that particular church had quite a lot of, um, not quite a lot, there was about five of the congregation who had gambling problems. So I invited a friend of mine from Gamblers Anonymous to come and do a talk. And three of those people ended up going to GA mm. and getting well. And it was like, oh, that's amazing. Mm. So, and that's how it started, really. That was how my journey of faith started. And, and I do now know wholeheartedly that God gifted me this recovery so I could be a light bearer in all of my affairs. Wherever I go, he's given me a voice, he's given me a passion and a purpose for recovery and a, an ability to talk about it openly and honestly so I can be a light bearer. And, and that's in church too, you know, and I do a lot of work with churches these days because people, people are people. People do get on well with lots of different addictive behaviours mm. and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And they do go to church, some of them, you know. So I don't judge anybody. I just get alongside them mm. and hold the hand and say, right, are you ready? That's what seems like amazing about sort of AA, a lot of those things. It feels like it's very non-judgmental. Yeah. And that, I guess, is part of what gives people the freedom to be honest and vulnerable, that there's no there's no judgment, which is kind of what I think was slightly not quite right about those alpha courses that you did. Yeah. It's like, if somehow I can have that. Yeah, and, and as well in that particular alpha course, there was, um, you know, there was alcohol 
on the table mm-hmm. and uh, you know for me at, at that time I was really vulnerable it was really important that I, I, I wasn't around alcohol um, and there was a lot of people saying oh now you're now you've been restored Jesus has saved you you can drink normally and to an alcoholic that's like music to your ears it's like can I and I didn't need to hear that. So those are the scary things that I was hearing. And I was thinking, and I would go back to my alcoholic uh, recovering sponsor and go, they've told me in church I can drink safely. And she was like, you're an alcoholic, you can't drink safely. And she said, if you want to explore faith, explore faith, but do it alongside your recovery. So that's what I do today. I don't do faith instead of recovery. I do recovery and faith mm. side by side. I bring my light from my faith into the dark places and I bring my light from the recovering community into into faith also. Because like I say, you know, 87% of the people I help, they do have jobs, they do have families and a lot of them do have faith, of different faiths, not only Christians, but, you know, this illness does not, the illness of addiction does not discriminate it affects everyone. Mm. I've helped millionaires, billionaires. I've helped vicars. I helped a nun. I help anybody. Anybody who wants it, I'll help. It must be what you were saying, that first alpha course and there being alcohol, that it does feel like, and you were saying before about sort of the amount of people that are killed from alcohol so much more than drugs, but we don't sort of talk about it because as part of this thing in our society that alcohol is very social this is what you do you get together and you have drinks and a lot of things revolve around that but what do you do when you know that's quite difficult I think of like any social with school parents is like at a pub drinking like just so many things revolve around doing that so you know is that a flaw in our society but also how do we make it so that that's not makes it uncomfortable for people who are in recovery but don't necessarily want to tell everyone at their group that they are in recovery. But... I think I think as a society we've got a lot to learn. I think, I mean, part of what I do with, with our charity, Kennedy Street, is we educate people. We help people understand what recovery is and what people need. And a, a lot of what we do in... So we're based in Brighton and we've got a little hub, a little recovery hub... Um, quite close to St Peter's Church um, and we do a lot of social occasions, sober social occasions there um, where we have celebrations we've had a Valentine's party over Christmas, we had um, sober come dine with me experiences and um, so it's just about just having a more open mind and a little bit more um, compassion and understanding that actually it's, it's going to do everybody good, you know, if we have some sober free activities or, you know, social occasions. Not, especially our kids. You've got to remember, for what we're teaching is we're teaching our children how to socialise by showing them. So if every social occasion you have involves wine or beer or whatever, you're basically normalising that to those little people. They've not, they've not started yet. I mean, my kids grew up in an alcohol-free home. They thought it was weird when people did drink. So my eldest went to her friend's house and they were having dinner and uh, the daddy was having a glass of wine, red wine, with a spag bottle. 
which is what people do, Georgie came home in floods of tears. And she said, Mummy, I think, I think Anna's daddy's an alcoholic. And I was like, why, whoa, 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 what's going on? And she went, he had red wine with dinner. And I was like, oh, we've not had that conversation, have we yet, sweetie? She thought everybody who drank wine was alcoholic. And I had to explain to her that that wasn't the case, that Donna's daddy wasn't alcoholic. He probably just wanted a glass of wine with dinner. And uh, so for her, it was weird when people drank. And still to this day, she's she's going to university next year. She's still freaked out a little bit by how much people drink. She drinks, but she drinks normally. She'll like have a, a pint of cider. I mean, that's it. You know, she'll because oh, I, I had a pint of cider tonight, mommy, and I'm like, is that it? And she'd go, yeah. And I'd go, that's just so strange. It's so foreign to me to hear that people drink normally. Through the kind of G Street recovery, you've got that place and it's sort of, it's the idea that you're helping people as they kind of yeah. realise that they want to get help to find yeah. ways to do that. It's a starting point or a reconnection point for anyone and everyone that's interested in recovery from addiction. We can't help everybody because not everybody's ready for recovery. So, uh, like somebody came in the other day, drunk as you like, and I said to them, you know, we can help you, but we can only help you get into recovery. Are you ready for that? And they said, I'm not an alcoholic. I mean, they were, they were drunk. And I said, oh, okay, so if you're not an alcoholic, we're an addictions recovery charity. I mean, it's not up to me to tell them if they're an alcoholic or not. And they said, no, I don't want to get into recovery. And I'm not Where'd an they alcoholic. Come, they? And that's what I said. I said, well, with all due respect, why have you come to us? And she said, well, because I'm lonely. So I said, well, I said, we're not, we're not a hangout place for, for drunk or drug people that are lonely. We're a recovery charity that helps people to engage in abstinence-based recovery. And if harm minimization plays a part in that we will help you get to the point where you need to be because in my experience controlled drinking for an alcoholic doesn't work it's like controlled drowning for somebody who can't swim it's mm. like it's not going to be effective so but they have to explore all of their options and if they're looking for abstinence-based recovery and they want to recover will equal their efforts so it's and and the reason why we've started this little hub is because 28 years ago when we were looking for help for Kev we didn't know who to ask we went to the doctor we went to see specialists uh, the doctor said the GP said yes he needs to stop drinking as if we'd not thought of that it was like yep we know he needs to stop drinking and every day he wakes up, he swears, he literally would swear on the Bible. Kevin was brought up a Catholic, so he had a Bible at home. And he would actually put his hand on the Bible and say, I swear today I'm not going to drink alcohol. And within five minutes, he'd gone to the bathroom and he'd found one of his hidden bottles of vodka, because Kevin used to hide vodka as well. It was like, he couldn't, he just couldn't do it on his own. He really couldn't. And I couldn't do it on my own, you know. So he ended up going into an acute psychiatric hospital and then whilst he was in that acute psychiatric hospital I basically lived in AA meetings I used to go to two sometimes three a day 
but there was nowhere to go, there was nowhere to ask questions. You can't really ask questions in an AA meeting. You can ask some of the fellows that you meet, like, you know, what is a sponsor and, you know, what do you suggest I do? You know, am I allowed to smoke, smoke weed? You know, I thought you were, I thought, you just had to stop drinking alcohol. There was nobody to ask these questions to. So what we do at our hub is we offer a safe space that's drug and alcohol free, that's run by people in recovery who have got a lived experience of actively participating in a recovery process. We all go to meetings still and we're all involved in fellowship, different fellowships. We've got people um, that are involved in smart recovery even. We've got one volunteer. Because, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't suit everybody. You know, and we don't judge. We don't say, oh, well, it's that way or no way. If they're looking for an alternative route to recovery, we connect them to CGL, which is the local drug and alcohol service in Brighton. Okay. And they're commissioned by the government to help people. They, get, they, they do stuff in a different way. They, they? they offer treatment. So they offer medical interventions. We don't offer anything medical. We're not a medical um, charity. We don't offer medical interventions. What we offer is support, mm. recovery support, and signposting. So if somebody comes to me and goes, I need a, a detox from alcohol, mm. I'll connect them straight away with CGL. I'll help them fill in the referral form and I'll help them understand, um, you know, what not to do. So, you know, don't don't stop drinking suddenly. It's really important because that's when you're great at your greatest risk. Make sure that you've, you know, if you've not got friends and family that can help you support you to start to decrease your alcohol you know go to an AA meeting and talk to some of the people that you meet there and they'll help you that's what AA, AA meetings do they help um so because do people need to cut down jets even how people yeah. stop doing it is... especially alcohol alcohol is the deadliest of all the drugs so that's the one that's most dangerous to just stop if you're drinking alcoholically and you've become physically dependent so um, you can become mentally dependent, so it affects the mind first, and then the, the, as, as alcoholism progresses, it starts to physically affect you. So, you know, I don't know, but everybody usually drinks at some point until they've got a really bad hangover. So that is the beginning of a detox, your body detoxifying. So at, the more you progress with alcoholism, the worst your detoxing process becomes. So if you're physically dependent, you and you don't, and you wake up the next morning, and you feel sick. You might be sick. You might feel very jittery, very shaky, very sweaty, um, diarrhea, very bad stomach cramps, um, very very bad headaches, um, and basically what that is, your body is going into toxic shock. So that's an alcohol, your body's detoxifying. And the, the next stage after that is, as the disease of alcoholism progresses, is you start to have, you start to shake that much that you start to have seizures. You pass out, so your legs go from under you. So you might go to the bathroom, you've not had, because you've not, you've not put the poison in, so the alcohol, you need to top, keep that at a certain level. Um, and then your body goes into shock because it's not had enough. So that's when people start having seizures. 
I think people don't talk about seizures enough, alcoholic seizures, and that's when your body hasn't had enough of what it's been having. So Kevin's first seizure was when we went on holiday for a month to Barbados and he drank solidly every day. I didn't drink every day, I used, I used drugs in between. So, um, and plus I'm 10 years younger than Kev, so I mean, he progressed a lot more because of his 10 years older than me. And then on the plane coming back from Barbados, we'd hired a private villa in Barbados. I mean, we lived, we lived it large, you know. We thought because we had money, we, it wasn't going to be a problem. And we, we were staying in this beautiful villa in Barbados. Kev was drinking every day, wasn't eating. And on the plane coming back from Barbados, he said to me, I've got to stop drinking. He said, I feel terrible. So I said, and I just thought, oh God, thanks God, maybe this will be the one that it really does. Because he looked terrible. He was shaking and everything on the plane. He did have a drink on the plane because he had to. And the next day when we were in Manchester, we went for a walk and he was like, oh, that's it now, I'm done, I'm done. We phoned my mum up, said, that's it now, we're both not drinking anymore, you know, we're going for a walk, we're going to have some lunch maybe. And that's when his body started going into seizure because he'd not had enough alcohol in him, because he'd been drinking solidly every day for a month. And that's when he had his first seizure. Body couldn't cope His body him. couldn't go, no, and he fell in the middle of a very busy area in Didsbury in Manchester. And when I looked up, there was a photographer saying, where your fridge is, taking pictures. And I was like, yeah. where did he come from? Again, we'd had our phone tapped, so they were following us. But that was the first time we'd ever, ever, ever spoke about or heard about an alcoholic seizure. So it's very important when people come to see me if they're drinking alcoholically. I, the first thing I say to them is the worst thing you can do is stop suddenly. So you need medical intervention when there is um, alcohol involved. Alcohol's the worst of the drugs. Mm. Heroin, people will clock coming off of it, like they feel very shaky and very nasty and like very, you know, restless legs and feel terrible. But they won't die. Most people won't die, I should say. But I'm sure there are some unfortunates. And it's the same with crack cocaine. Benzodiazepines are also a very dangerous drug to come off. So those are diazepam, the PAM family. Uh, they're sort of prescribed drugs. Yeah. So those are really, really... People don't realise that they're addicted to them because the doctors prescribe them. Uh, so that sort of justifies it. Yeah. I had a lady come in the other day, she said, um, I've got an alcohol addiction, I want to stop drinking, um, and I said, well, do you take any other drugs? And she said, yeah, but only prescribed drugs. So I said, what do you take? So she said, diazepam and codeine. So I said, okay, do you take over the prescribed dose? She said, oh yeah, every day I take loads more than I should. So I said, you do know that that's addictive behaviour, don't you? And she said, no, she said, I get the prescribed prescription off the doctor so I said yeah but it's still addictive behavior so I said those are highly addictive drugs I said really you need to talk to your doctor about um, the fact that you're overtaking your prescribed dose and maybe if you are seriously thinking about giving up alcohol maybe you should get some medical intervention and maybe connect to CGL because CGL are commissioned by the government they get millions every year to offer medical detoxes either in the community or in residential rehabs I mean the chances of you getting into a residential rehab that's another story so it can be up to six months before you get a place 
and in some cases people die waiting to get into rehab. So I try and do whatever I can to try and get people into, if they need a rehab, which a lot of people do, I try every which way to try and get them into somewhere. Mm. But it's so difficult because there's so few places, so, so few places. I ring up private rehabs and ask for free beds. I do anything, anything and everything. And do they ever do that? Yeah, sometimes, yeah, if I throw myself at the mercy of them. I do. I, 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 a lot of people can afford to go into private rehabs. So there must be a lot, though, aren't they? During COVID, we had over um, we had over eighty seven um, private people go into treatment. Mm-hmm. So we had over two thousand calls in one year. A lot, eighty seven percent of those were private. Uh, were high high functioning. When I say high functioning, it means they had a job. They weren't really high functioning. They were hanging on by the fingernails. Um, but some of those people, they couldn't afford to wait six months to go into rehab. Um, and during COVID, it was you had more chance of platting fog than getting put into treatment because everything literally closed down, apart from the private pr- providers. So if people can afford to go into treatment, go pay. It's the best money they'll ever spend. Mm. If they can afford it, that's the thing. We borrowed the money when Kev went in off Granada and we paid them back it was the best £18,000 we ever borrowed it's probably more now it is for the priory it's about £25,000 for a month wow but I can find treatment if somebody does have financial support I can get them into treatment for £7,000 it's not the priory they, they do have to live in the community and they have to live in a shared house and they have to do chores. But I'm not going to lie, I think that's a good thing. So it teaches them about real life as well. Some people do need to go into the Priory. Kev, my husband, he needed to go into the Priory because he did try and go into um, one of the street homeless charities in Manchester called Turning Point. But it was full of street drinkers who were basically iconising him because he was Curly Watts from Coronation Street so he wasn't able to get well. He wasn't amongst kindred spirits that could see him for being an alcoholic. They were basically putting him on a pedestal, giving him a guitar and asking him to do a gig. And it was like, he was like, yeah. <laughs> and so he didn't have to look at himself. Whereas when he went into the Priory, he was surrounded by, you know, middle-class businessmen who'd messed the lives up, mm. who weren't going to blow smoke up his bum and say, here's a guitar play, give us a, give us a tune, Curly. They were saying, so, Kevin, so you're an alcoholic, are you? And it was like he had no, no place to hide by going in there and being around people who who we worked with, really, those sorts of people. Mm. And it's really important. That's a piece of work that I do, is I find people what best fits them. You know, people of faith. They do like to go into a, a faith-led re- um, rehab, and there are a couple of faith-led rehabs in the UK. There's a great one called Yaldol. Um, and they do offer bursary places. But, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling for bursary places. They have a Samaritan fund. You can imagine, there's mm. a, lot, a lot of need. Mm. So if people can pay for themselves to go into that rehab, but they have a minimum stay of six months. You know, some people can't afford to go into somewhere for six months, especially if you've got family and a job. But the big vision for us is to be able to offer something similar in Brighton. I would love... I think that's part of God's plan, the vision. A place in Brighton, a community space, like our little hub, 
somewhere maybe a bit bigger where people can come in the day, they can get well, they can, we can help rehabilitate them in the community and they can go to a, a, a nice home that they help care for where there's maybe a mum and a dad who can teach them life skills, you know, um, and then come back to the hub in the day and then when they get to the stage where they want to either go back into education or become upskilled and become either self-employed or employable, we can help do that too. Like I said to you earlier, I've helped 11 social enterprises launch, all led by people in recovery, all led by people who thought they would never in a million years amount to anything other than be drug or drunks, drug addicts or drunks. Mm. And when they sober up, they're just unbelievable people. They're unbelievable people when they're drunk and drugged, but they just don't know it. Yeah. But once they've, once they've taken away that blockage, it's like the world's their oyster. Mm. It's amazing to sort of how it all sort of seems, the sort of tapestry of your life, like you're talking about your aunt and the impact yeah. that she had without you kind of realising, yeah. and then through your experience, what you've been able to do, the people that you've helped, and now what you're doing now but knowing that there's lots more yeah. to come it's amazing to see how God has been kind of working in your life and then how he's using you and, and ab, others ab, and do you know what it's it's crazy that I was ever in doubt that God was part of my picture and um, I always ask people the like last question I always ask people is what the greatest inequality you see in the world what you would say is kind of the biggest injustice inequality from kind of your life experience or from what you're doing? I would say the stigma that's attached to addiction. And I was one of those people too. You know, I did judge people, you know, before I realised I was an alcoholic addict and that my life was being destroyed, I would sit very high on a pedestal in my own world, pointing at these poor unfortunates that had addiction problems and judge them and think, because I believed the press. I believed the press. I believed what people said, you know, helpless, useless, hopeless, you know, all of these words, these negative words. And what, what for me, it's about help. And my job as a, as a passionate recovery activist is to change the narrative. I mean, a massive piece of work that I want to do is, is around education. It's introduce people to people that are in recovery. Addiction gets a lot of press, but we don't know, we don't hear about recovery. Mm. So the greatest inequality for me is, you know, believing the narrative around addiction and not knowing what the narrative is about recovery. And let's, let's tell the world what, what is achievable mm. and change the mm. dialogue and just educate people. Mm. Yeah, that's so good, so good. I think there's uh, so much to learn about it. I mean, I feel like, just like, having this conversation, I feel like I've learned so much and I could keep <laughs> talking. Really <laughs> lovely. You. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. It's been so interesting. I just, yeah, loved it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
Hope you enjoyed hearing from Claire and understanding a bit more about addiction recovery and Kennedy Street Recovery and the work that she's doing there. It's amazing to know a bit more about AA, about all the other addiction support that there is and Al-Anon for families affected by it. It's good to know that actually there's so much out there and it's, it's really worth tapping into that and getting that support and how amazing an impact that 12 Steps can have. So please share this with people that you think might find this helpful or might need to know about a bit more about this subject and like, subscribe, do all those things. It really helps to get other people to hear about it. And thank you so much to Levi Smith. He's amazing and brilliant and helps edit this podcast. And thank you for listening. Thank you.